You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. That's where we'll be at today. Mark chapter 10. I think I said it before. I'll say it again. I don't love big, long series in other different texts and whatnot. They're not my favorite uh, because I love just plowing through a book. I love getting to parts of Scripture that I'm not used to. Uh, But today I really uh, think we need to just examine... Uh, the words of Jesus in regard to, um, so today's, today's sermon is entitled, Church Matters. So church is significant, but church is important. Leaders that serve. Uh, and we're starting to look at who are deacons, okay? Uh, but before we start looking at who deacons are and what a deacon is and whatnot, we need to see God's commands from Scripture in regard to all of us. Because here's the thing we have to start with before we jump in. Before I jump in, I'll just say, we're all deacons, every one of us. And if we don't start by seeing that if you're a Christian, the heart of a Christian is the heart of a deacon. The heart of a Christian is the heart of service. The heart of every Christian is the heart of service of others out of a heart that's been served. Okay? So Mark chapter 10, that's what we're going to be looking at today. So leaders that serve. And this is part one. So this is actually for all of you today. Everything that we're hearing today is, for, is not just for deacons, particularly like the office deacons. We're actually going to be, this is for all Christians everywhere, okay? So Mark chapter 10, this is the words of Jesus, okay? So we're going to hear, hear Jesus talking to James and John. Um, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 35. And I'm going to read it, and then we'll pray, and then we'll jump in. So Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they became indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said, you know that those who consider, who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, lord it over them, And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this text is so foundational to what you continually said. On this earth, Lord, you continually spoke to your disciples and said things like what we're going to hear today. And so, Lord, I pray rather than just looking at them with disdain and wondering why haven't they got it, help us to ask the question, Lord, what are we missing Lord, rather than looking at James and John and thinking, how silly of them, Lord, may we consider even today that we're just like James and John. 
Forgive us, Lord, for where we are. Change us, form us, shape us, we pray, more and more into your image. Help us, we ask. Lord, give me the utterance to speak your word this morning, to be faithful to who you are. Lord, give us hearts that are receptive, that we may hear your word proclaimed and be changed. Help us, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. R. C. Sproul once wrote a book that was in call, entitled, um, well, I'm going to forget the title, but it was about significance. Uh, significance in the Christian, not just in the Christian life, but it's significance why we as people hunger and long to be significant. And I want you, I'm going to quote him at length here. I want you to see it. It's on the screen. He says, we want our lives to count. Now, this is not just Christians. This is all people. We yearn to believe that in some way we are important. This inner drive is as intense as our need for water or oxygen. The hunger for esteem is the propelling force behind the entrepreneur's brilliant enterprise, the athlete's competitive spirit, the warrior's lust for conquest. This elemental drive has been dissected and analyzed by scholars, peeled layer by layer, subjected to the closet of scrutiny, only to be praised by some and damned by others. Then he says, the aspiration for significance can be known by other names and called by other terms. The businessman might call it success motivation or the goal of achievement. Our founding father spoke of it as the pursuit of happiness. And he says, the hunger for significance is consuming. When it eludes us, it leaves us empty, an empty void gnawing to be filled. The hollow point aches for satisfaction. We dream, we hope, we fantasize our moment in the sun, hoarding the scraps of success in the trophy rooms of souls. Now, what Sproul says there, I think, is just very significant. And it's basically that all of us desire at a deep level. I don't have to teach my son to want significance in life. Just like I don't have to teach him to lie, I don't have to teach him to want to, be, to matter. And I would actually argue, I don't think it's wrong that we seek significance. There's something profoundly important about being important but we need to understand the right kind of importance. I would actually argue we shouldn't stop seeking significance. We need a complete foundational retransformation of significance. Because here's what's happening. If we take just the world's definition of significance, let me paint to you a church that would look like the world's definition of significance. So you walk in the front door, and the prominent people have seats. And if you're lesser, if you're of lower caste, or if you're lower significance, you know where you sit? In the back. Or or children. Children, they're just an annoyance. Get them out of here. We're so inconvenient. They're so slow. And it becomes very centered on we. We matter. Not ever thinking about anyone outside of us. Or how about older people? How we treat older people? You want to hear what happens when a church becomes engulfed in the world's definition of significance? Older people become neglected entirely. You know why? Because they're slow, 
because, they, because they're not what they used to be and they're an inconvenience. And all of that, all of it, is completely contrary to the gospel. And all of it is completely contrary to Jesus' definition of significance. Notice what they said when they came to him. Now, if you jump down, so I want you just to see, see first off, we're talking about deacons, but before we start talking about deacons, we need to understand who Jesus is in this way. We need to understand what he's like, and he's first, he is the servant of all servants. So in order for us to, to re-correct the kind of worldly significance we may want or seek, we have to see Jesus in all who he is. And I would argue, actually, as I've thought about this this week, this has been a lot more challenging than I initially thought. Because you do this sometime this week. You, you ask, and do this with a Christian. Find a Christian and ask them simply, do you follow Jesus? Oh, yeah, 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 I follow Jesus. What would you think about Jesus washing your feet? Ask him that question. The Son of God coming lowly, stooping down, washing their feet. And I would argue that many Christians would be like, no, 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 not me, not me. And that's part of the problem. That we ourselves have not been served by the Son of God. So the servant of all servants. I want us to consider this. So notice James and John. So jump back to verses 35 through 37. We're going to see Jesus' redefinition of significance or greatness here. Listen to what he says. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Just, Just pause for a second. Think about that. Here's Jesus, their Lord and Master, and two, two, two young spry men come up and they're like, Lord, do, with, do for us whatever we want. Well, certainly, what, that's, no, that's no small request. Notice what Jesus says. He doesn't get annoyed. He says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand in glory. Now remember, Jesus has been continually telling them, in Mark's gospel especially, I'm going to die. I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die. And I would argue that they kept thinking what that meant was, they're going to go conquer. They're going into Jerusalem, we're going in guns blazing, and hey, Lord, when we get there, when you're sitting on your throne, can I sit one on your right, one on your left? And Jesus says, so I want you to see first off, that James and John, now we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but it's a theology of glory. This is what James and John had. They had a theology or, an, or, a, or a belief about who God is in, in, in a very worldly glory sense. And it could be summarized very simply, I love this, your life for mine. I want you to think about that. Your life for mine. This is the, this is the heart of all worldly glories. Your life for mine. I know, I know you, you matter, but I matter a little more. I know your significance, but I, I just matter just a tiny bit more. Your life for mine. And their conception of Jesus is that he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to be king, and we just want a slice of that pie, baby. Give it to us. We want the glory. We'll sit there. We'll crush the nations with you. Just let us sit with you in prominence. And now, Tim Keller, I think he's very helpful here. He says... We are not supposed to read this and think, how do these fools keep missing it? Because that's my tendency. I see these guys and I'm like, come on, guys. Don't you get it by now? 
teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Let us sit at your right hand and your left hand. He says, we need to ask, what are we missing? What am I, not just we collectively, what is Daniel missing here? What, is, what are you missing here specifically? When you see how John and James respond, you realize how hard it is for anybody to take the magnitude of the cross. I love what he said there, and I think it's so significant. So when we hear this, what we're talking about, this theology of glory, we can't just be thinking about, hey, you know who needs to hear this message? My Uncle Bill. My Uncle Bill, he needs to hear this message. He is so worldly. No, 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 no. If you start with that, you'll end in the wrong place. I promise you, you'll end in the wrong place. So we need to start by looking, looking in the mirror and seeing what we are like. What are we missing? Notice what Jesus says to them even kind, so kind, even to talking to foolish people. He's so kind. You don't know what you're asking. You don't understand. You think you understand. You don't understand. Jesus said to them, look at verse 38. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized. Notice where Jesus goes directly. So they had a, they had a conception of God that here, we got to get a piece of the pie. We got to get a piece of significance. Give us the theology of glory. But Jesus, he had a theology of the cross. And I want you to see very strikingly the difference. Here's the theology of glory. Your life for mine. I want you to listen to Jesus' conception. It's my life for yours. I want you to think about how profound that is. It's my life at your cost, at at my expense. You're going to benefit everything. My life for yours. The cup that Jesus is referring there to in verse um, 38, look down at verse 38. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Now, in the Bible, when the Bible typically talks of, we could look at several other passages, almost every time the Bible talks about the cup, it's referring to the cup of God's wrath, at least in the Old Testament. Meaning that the cup of God's wrath, which is God's wrath that's going to get poured out on the nations. Okay? So God's wrath, and you know what Jesus says? Notice what he says. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? So, so they're thinking like, hey, he's going to have some great wine in the new kingdom. I want, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll drink that cup. And Jesus is like, no, you're not understanding. Can you drink the cup of God's wrath? Or, or baptism. This is, this is very important to even our understanding of baptism. He says, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized, meaning his death. When we baptize a person, we're baptizing them into the death of Christ. And he says, can you be baptized with death and come out on the other side? And now we're about to hear their, their utter confusion on what's going on. Verse 39, listen to what they say. And they said to him, we are able. Again, don't hear two men that are just blubbering fools. We need to hear ourselves. We are able. Two disciples that Jesus loves Deeply confused, deeply arrogant, deeply self-sufficient, deeply sinful. Listen to what Jesus says to them again. And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, 
The cup that I drink, you'll drink. With the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. And so we see Jesus is doing something here for us. He's, he's, he's changing categories. So we see that worldly greatness cannot equal true greatness. And we'll show you here just in a second how that, how that looks. So worldly greatness, if you're taking notes there, worldly greatness cannot equal true greatness. He says, the cup that I drink, you will drink. With the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not mine to grant, but it's for those whom it has been prepared. Now, the cup that Jesus is referring to that they'll drink is different. I would argue we're going to actually see it a little bit here, that we still drink the cup of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 11, we talk about it. The cup of communion is no longer the cup of God's wrath. You know why? Because Jesus drank it to the dregs. So when we drink the cup now, we don't drink God's wrath. We drink God's blessing. And that's what he's saying to them. These fools don't even see what's in front of them. They're saying, can we sit one at your right hand and one at your left? He's like, you're going to drink the cup that I have for you. And it won't be the cup of God's wrath. It'll be the cup of blessing. And the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized, meaning that you're going to die. Notice, too, what he says in verse 40. And two, he says, but, to the, but at my right hand and my left hand is not for me to grant. Now, I would argue right there when he says that, I think he's referring to the thieves on either side of him on the cross. I, I don't think you have to take it that way, but the point is that Jesus is saying, that's even, I don't even determine that. The Father determines that. So what you're asking for, I can't even do. I'm not going to do. God's going to do it for me. But notice what happens. Don't, don't miss it. We could go down a rabbit trail there. I don't want to go down a rabbit trail. Verse 41, notice what happens. And when they heard it, when the ten heard it, they became indignant or angry at James and John. So, so here, notice what's happening. The two disciples, they pull Jesus aside. They're like, hey, Jesus, can we sit one at your right hand and one at your left? And the other ten, they're like, hey, 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 what are you doing? I, you... I want a piece. Where's my slice of the pie? Jockeying for position with one another. You can even picture them then back and forth pushing each other. What are you doing, man? I want a piece of the pie. How dare you ask him for that? Now notice what Jesus does in verse 42. And Jesus called them to him. And every time I picture verse 42, I picture a coach dealing with a bunch of like very foolish teenagers, like, come here, come here, come here, come here, we need to talk, get, her, get in the circle. And he says, Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So now he's going to give us worldly greatness, okay? That's what he does in verse 42. He tells us, this is how the world defines greatness, and it's simply your life we could put it, your life for mine. He goes a step further. Your life under mine. Your life under me. And if you work in the workplace in any capacity at all, if it's not a Christian company, I can guarantee you this is the mindset of every person you work with. Your life for mine. All I really want is the next pay grade. All I really want is to be in charge. And Jesus says, that's not greatness. That's not greatness. That's not significance. Now, the, now he says, now notice what he says again in verse 42. 
And Jesus called them to him and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Now that word for lording is the same word we saw that's commanded that elders are not that way, which is basically being a bully, being domineering. Gentile leadership looks like bullying those who are in your charge. And the ones who are called great in your society exercise authority. Now last week, if you remember, last week we talked about that elders are meant to exercise, or exercise oversight. Now that word for exercise authority, the great ones, is not the same word for exercise um, oversight. Exercise authority would actually be the same word that we get for tyrannize. He says, you, you know that the Gentiles, they tyrannize the people under them, pushing them down so that they can step upon their backs to get a step higher. And Jesus says, notice what he doesn't say. You know, he doesn't say, stop seeking greatness. He doesn't say, stop seeking significance. He doesn't say, hey, hey, stop seeking those things. You know why? Because God made us to be this way. He made us to want significance defined correctly, defined like he defines it. He says that we should define greatness like God defines it. Now notice what he says again in verse 42. You know that those who who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord or domineer over, over them, and their great ones tyrannize over them. Now notice what he says in verse 43. But that's not how it should be among you. Very simply, I want to get very earthy here for a second, very practical. Maybe next time you come to one of our fellowship dinners, you're sitting there and you're getting ready to eat, and you notice somebody who comes in amongst our gathering that you've never really known before. Maybe they look like they're even kind of less, less well-off. Worldly greatness would be to say, ignore them, go ahead and get your plate, Go ahead and ignore them again. Get, step in front of them. Ignore them a third time, a fourth time, a fifth time, a sixth time, and just leave. That's okay. Just go on without them. Don't even talk to them. Who really cares who they are? Let me get very earthy here for a second. What's Jesus calling us to do? He said, but it shall not be so among you. You walk into that church fellowship, I would argue he's saying, you go find the most unimpressive in that room. And you sit down and you talk to them. And you sit down and you love them. So, sorry for the earthiness. I just want you to see for a second how this is different. But he says, this shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you. There it is again. He's not saying don't be great. He's not saying don't seek significance. He's saying if you want to be great, be a servant. Now that word for servant is literally the word deacon. Diakonos. So he's, he's redefining. So that's worldly greatness. We saw worldly greatness. Let's look at true greatness. True greatness. And it's a servant of all. And it's simply this. It's my life for yours. My life for yours. And it's true greatness. His followers are not meant to be like those who tyrannize others. He redefines, completely flips on its head greatness. He thinks, you say, you think greatness looks like this? No, 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 no. Greatness is upside down. 
Greatness does not look like the world defines it. Greatness does not look like how pagans define it. The world defines greatness as money, sex, and power. Get all you can and can all you get. Get everything you can and keep it. That's not how we define greatness. He says it again. Notice what he says again in verse 43. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great, there it is again, among you, you must be, whoever would be great among you, you must be your servant in that way. So, and again, I want to circle up here for a second on that word servant, which is the word deacon, which is where we get the word for waiter of tables. So think about when you go to a restaurant, who comes to you and picks up your stuff, picks up your napkins, the, the weird little tissues your children blow their noses in, they come and they pick it up and they, they take it away. It's a waiter of tables. Their, their job is not pleasant necessarily all the time. But he says this is what true greatness looks like. You want to know what true greatness looks like in the church? It looks like not the guy in front of you. It's the person beside you serving you. Think about how different that is. It's not standing up here. It's standing side by side to one another. It's not about a role. It's the life of every Christian. And if you desire to be great in this life, I'm not saying don't desire that. Desire it how Jesus says to desire it. Desire to be great, be a deacon. Be a, be a waiter of tables. I love what J.C. Ryle says. He says, let them never forget that true greatness does not consist in being an admiral or a general or a statesman or an artist. It consists in devoting ourselves, body and soul and spirit, to the blessed work of making our fellow men more holy and more happy. True greatness is redefined as being a servant. Notice again what he says in verse 43 and 44. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now the difference, there is a slight difference there in, in, that, in the two phrases. The slave of all is different than the servant. The slave does not, is not a matter of choice, as one commentator said, and says they're not free to belong to themselves. But I want you to notice, what, again, what he says in verse 44. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. So he doesn't say, hey, I've heard people talk sometimes like this in regard to Christianity. They think that Christianity is just about being a doormat. Just be a doormat for everybody. No, no, no. This isn't about doormatness, okay? This is about serving and being a slave for others. So you want to be first? Here's first. It's last. You don't know what last is? It's first, you want, to be the, you want to be the most rejected person in this church, be first. Be the first to, first to favor yourself in that way. That's true lowliness, actually, as Jesus defines it. When you have a church that's lacking in servant-minded people, you have a church filled with worldly people. I want to say that one more time. You have a ch- when you have a church lacking servant-minded people, you have a church filled with worldly people. Oh, that we would all be deacons. Oh, that we would all be deacons in this sense. But if you want to be great in the eyes of God, then be a servant. Now, I want you to notice that this this all hangs on verse 45. Notice what Jesus says. He says, for even, here he, he gives the grounds, for even the Son of Man 
came not to be served, but to serve. Again, those two words, again, that we get for deacon. He came not to be served, but to serve. Another way you could put it would be, for even the Son of Man came not to be deaconed, but to deacon. <laughs> Literally. The King of the universe did not come to claim His position. The King of the universe did not come to gain. The King of the universe came to become lesser. Philippians 2 says the same thing. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself. How did he empty himself? Notice what he says. By taking on the form of a servant. By taking on. You know how Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, came and became a servant for me and for you. I want you to just think about that. The Son of Man did not come to be served. He could have. He very well could have came and said, in every, in every sense he could have came and said, here's my authority, rule, rule under me, little peasants. No, no, no. The Son of Man came, who's always existed, Messiah and Lord of all, did not come to be served. He came to serve. You go talk to any religious person ever, and you will find that they want to serve their deity. You go talk to Hindus, if they stop serving their deity, their deity will dry up and die. Buddhists, same thing. Muhammad, even, it's the same thing. All other gods need to be held up, need to be served. So the thing that makes a person a Christian is not a heart of service, because I would actually argue that everyone, everyone, even if they're religious in that sense, they want to serve but they want to hold God up so that they can even be in control of Him. Listen to how Acts 19, when, the, when, when Paul starts preaching the gospel and, and people start going away from the people who were making the idols, listen to what they said. This is a good description of it. And there's a danger. This is one of the silversmiths. This is what he says. There's a danger not only for this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. Do you hear it? Even right there, they're saying, hey, Artemis, if, we, if they keep doing this, they keep preaching the gospel, Artemis will go away. Oh, we don't want that. She'll be counted as nothing. She may even be disposed or deposed from her magnificence for whom all Asia and the world worship. I want to say something that's really profound. God doesn't need us to serve him. God does not need us to serve him. He does not need anything. He's the one who has the cattle on a thousand hills. He needs nothing from me and you. He needs absolutely nothing. I would actually argue the way we should preach Christ to this generation is not continuing to come to them and say, Jesus needs you. Jesus doesn't need them. Jesus doesn't need them. But he wants them. Praise be to God that Jesus doesn't say, hey, I came to be served so that you all little peasants can serve me. No. The Son of God, when He comes, He serves. For even the Son of Man came not to be deaconed, but to deacon and to give His life as a ransom for many. And you'll see there in your notes, unless we are first served, 
We can't have his share. Now, I want, you, I want you to turn real quick to John 13. I want you to see this from another place. This isn't just Mark 10. We could look at other places as well. But John 13, we read it this morning, but I, I just want it to sit in front of you. John 13, 1 says this. He says, now before the feast of the Passover, this is, this is they're, they're in the upper room, they're having a feast, and there's something that happened here that isn't mentioned. Nobody from among them Jesus and the twelve, nobody washed Jesus' feet when they, they came in. Now, in that moment, if I was sitting in Jesus' place, Lord of the universe, sitting there with my twelve guys I've been working with, I'd be like, come on, guys, what are you doing? Get, get, get your act together. I'm the son of God. Don't you know this? Listen to what he says. Now, before the feast of the Passover, When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The point is coming of his death, even. This is the last time they're going to eat together. What's he do? Sitting there with dirty feet, probably stinking, literally stinking, he gets up and he fills It says, during supper, verse 2, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, he had come from God and was going back to God. Notice that even too. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. You can imagine, they're all thinking, what's what's he going to do? What's he going to do? What's he going to teach us here? He laid aside his outer garments And taking a towel, he ties it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was around him. That job of washing feet was the job of a slave. It wouldn't even have been a job that the disciples... So notice that even too. Probably actually one of the reasons why they didn't wash his feet is because there was no slave there. It was just them, Jesus and the twelve. And none of them took the position of saying... Slave, I'll be your slave. I'll wash your feet, master. And you can see the shock on their faces. The one in the room who would have been the most privileged, the most honored, is now getting down and doing a slave's job. Listen to what Peter says. He came to Simon Peter, who's the leader of them all, the first among equals, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing now you don't understand but afterward you will. And Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. Now, when we hear that again, we don't need to think, oh, Peter, you so silly, silly, silly man, silly, silly Peter, I'm so much different than you. No, 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 no. We need to look in the mirror and see that this, before we can serve, before we can try to be a deacon, we need to see God has first deaconed us. He has first come and washed our feet. He says, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if you do not wash, you have no share with me. May I argue that verse 8, I think this is true, from talking to students, sharing the gospel with people, I think this is one of the hardest things. This is one of the, actually the last straws to break in a person's walk with Christ. You know, you know why? I think it's the, this is the reason. Because this is the one of pride. When we get down and we wash another person's feet, we're saying, I'm taking the lowliest position. And what everyone always wants to do is the moment you do this, 
you now lose control. You're now no longer the one who's in charge. And he says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. I love buying people's lunch. And then hearing them immediately say, no, I'll get it. Because this is what I do all the time. People buy my lunch out of just being gracious to me. And the first thing I do is, oh, let, me, let me get my wallet, I'll pay you back. And they're always like, no, don't worry about it. Don't sweat it. And it bothers me. You know why that sticks in my craw? Why that really bothers me? Because of this. I don't want to be served. I would actually argue this is the reason that keeps many people out of the kingdom. This is actually the reason, too, why Jesus says that only children can enter the kingdom. You know why? Because children love being served. They love to be served. And he says to them, notice, don't miss what he says down in verse 13 and 14 of John 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's. Here's the one coming and saying, his life, my life for yours. Now go and make your life for theirs. Unless you are first served, you do not have a share with him. Listen to what he says again. And now jump back to Mark 10. We'll finish up in Mark 10. I want you to see just how serious Jesus takes this. And the last piece I want you to see is him giving his life as a ransom. The question is, so he's, he said, that's, that's not true greatness. True greatness is being a servant. The question then stands, how is Jesus going to be our servant? And he answers it in verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, came not to be deaconed, but to deacon and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, that word ransom, literally the only real place we use this in our society is in a movie like Taken. <laughs> so, so in Taken, there's a girl who's taken, literally, the movie, Taken, right there in the title. And when she's taken, the robbers, the people who took her, said, we'll give her back to you for a ransom. Here, you, we'll give you your daughter back. Give us a million dollars. And Jesus is saying here, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's saying that all of me, all, me and you and all of us were ones who were held captive to sin. And sin demanded a punishment from God. So I want you to see finally the substitutionary sacrifice. Substitutionary sacrifice. And it's simply my life for yours. Jesus substitutes his life for those who turn from their sin and believe. The wrath of God is still coming for all those who are outside of it. But he says, for those who trust and believe me, I'm going to drink down the cup of God's wrath for you. I'm going to be the one who stands in your place. The wrath deserving for me and you came to Jesus. What does this have to do with being a deacon? I would argue it has everything to be, do with being a deacon. Because unless we, as individual Christians who are part of a church, first are not, if we are not deacons ourselves, there will never be a deacon in this church. Before we can start talking about deacons and all these, their office and what they do, we need to realize we've all been served in the gospel. Every single one of us, Jesus has said, my life for yours. And if he hasn't said that to you, or if that still kind of sticks in your crawl and you're like, I, I don't know if that's really for me, I would argue you don't have a share with him. 
If you refuse to let him share, serve you in that way, you don't have a share with him. Now notice the, the, the word deacon again. Again, now I'm using it in a very general sense, but it truly just means to wait tables. And next week we're going to examine... Um, oh, your final note is wrong. I'm sorry. It's actually the bedrock of a deacon. And it's simply this. So it's, That's actually wrong. So you can just write the bedrock of a deacon. But simply it's this. His life, when we start to realize that his life for me, what it creates in us is a cry. It creates for, from, from us a cry that says, my life for yours. And this is fundamentally different. Christianity is not saying, your, li- or, uh, your life for mine, let me just try to jockey in positions to get up in the church. It's completely opposite. Jesus says that leadership in his body, this is how the world works. You, you climb the ladder. But in Jesus' church, it's the exact opposite. As leadership goes down, humility and lowliness go down and down and down and down until we reach a place called a deacon. And all of us are called to this. His life for mine creates the cry, my life for yours. My life for yours in my marriage, my life for yours with my children, my life for yours with one another, my life for yours in the workplace. Christians are called to be deacons serving from a gospel-shaped heart which says, my life for yours. I want to end with this. David Livingston was a missionary that went to Africa. Um, He's very well known. But he said something, and I was going to include the big long quote, and I'll just save you from it. But he said a really profound statement. David Livingston went from being at Cambridge, which is in England, very, very well-to-do. Think about the people who walk around and go, "Mm, yes, wine. Mm." He came from a very rich family. That's what David Livingston was like. But he said he was at Cambridge, and he started, the gospel started to grip him in such a way that he went to Africa. He wanted to go to the most inward parts of Africa. And he made a statement that said, I never sacrificed anything. Think about that. I never sacrificed anything. You know why he can say a statement like that? I think David Livingston actually ended up dying on the field. He did end up dying on the field. But through persecution, through anxiety, through all the things, all the many things that he would have, he said, I never sacrificed any of it, anything. You know why? Because he gave his life for me, therefore I give my life for all in that way. You want to know what true greatness is? True significance? Die. Die to yourself and live to serve others. If you want to be great in your workplace, do the same. Put down the lie that says I can be great in my job I can be great in my family. I can be great in all the other things that the world wants to lie to us about. And pick up the mantra of a deacon that says, my life for yours. So I want us to turn now, and I want us to actually take communion together. And I think it's very fitting, uh, especially on a day that we hear Jesus say to the disciples, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able And thankfully, by the grace of God, 
and the fact that Jesus has first washed our feet, we can actually drink from the cup that he drinks, but it's not the cup of wrath. It's the cup of celebration. It's the cup of victory. It's the cup that we can remember and proclaim he's done it all. All to him we owe. So if the deacons, if you guys want to come forward.